Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to the episode. <laughs> I have no idea. What Why do I even try? Moron. Why do I try? I write up a whole Excel sheet. This yeah. is the case and the, the number book. on it though. Is the number on it? Yes, it is. But please ignore oh, everything not. I email you. It is not. Oh, not on that. No, on oh, the okay. Excel spreadsheet I sent right, in the so email the not other day. <laughs> you know me. I need cue cards. <laughs> clearly we know who the brains in the family went to um so whatever whatever um anyway welcome to this episode of the pem podcast the psychic eye mystery podcast starring me victoria laurie and also co-starring my fabulous sister sandy um i almost said your last name <laughs> my family sister, sister nick <laughs> That is my last name. Thank you for telling everyone. <laughs> How do you pronounce that? <laughs> yeah. How do you spell it? S-M-I-T-H. Smith. Um, yeah. So um, I know we've been absent. See, you know, I feel like every time I come on here, I have to apologize. You too. Or just really just kind of treating this podcast like it's an annoyance <laughs> which it isn't it isn't it isn't but i am i have one book to finish actually two books to finish and then two more to write before the end of december this is my goal so i am my brain is totally <laughs> focused sandy's playing the world's smallest violin um totally focused on uh that manuscript. So I have like 60 pages of one before I can turn that in, 30 pages of another before I can turn that in. And then, boom, ba -da -dum. yes, folks, I have finally, 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 after 10 years of receiving emails every single month since 2015, um, come up with a fantastic sequel to when. It will not be a YA book. It will be um, more in the romance category. And um, I've already told Sandy the plot. And there was one point where this was her reaction. I kid you not. Come on. <laughs> that was my reaction. <laughs> yeah, because something something happens. And Sandy was not pleased about it. But um, yeah, so we'll have um, Aiden, Maddie, and Stubbs back. Um, they will be grownups. They will be in their mid-20s. And um it's, I, I, I'm just like so geeked. I ran it by Jim, my literary agent the other day. And um, he's basically, how fast can you write that? And I'm like, uh, pretty fucking fast. Cause I wrote one in two weeks. So I don't think I want to repeat that. Actually the fastest I ever wrote a book was eight days. <laughs> that was unpleasant. <laughs> Which book was that? That was, that was uh, Coach Red Handed. Oh, that was, okay. That's the one that just came out. Oh, good. Um, Eight days. Because I had written, I had written well over half of it and it was garbage. Like it was terrible. It, it wasn't coming together. I couldn't pull it together. And I kept like, sometimes you just go down a path and it's really, really hard to point the Titanic in a different direction. And um, I just couldn't save it. it. There was just no way to kind of pull it back and put it back on track and make it make sense. So I scrubbed 95% of it. And this was eight, to eight days before like my final, final, final deadline, because, you know, I look at deadlines and I'm like, that's adorable. Yeah. Um, 
clearly. So, yeah. So it was like do or die. I had to get it in. And um, I did it in eight days. It was like, I was writing something. Normally, normally I aim for like 3000 words a day, which is about 10 pages. And um, I was, <laughs> I was writing like 20,000 words a day. <laughs> it was just absolutely between 10 and 20,000 words a day. So that's, I had a blister. Sam's going to get her violin back out. I had a blister on my finger from typing. I think it was my, this your index. life is so hard. It, it, it is. It's it so is. hard. It's it so hard. Really, it's I was difficult. writing this book and then I got a <laughs> blister on my finger. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, mm -hmm, like it's mm -hmm. not all Carrie Bradshaw Wait. staring wistfully out her in your Gucci Park Avenue <laughs> apartment, you Dressed know, in your Gucci. walking into her, yeah, walking into her closet going, hello, lavas, to her shoes, you know, like that woman wrote what, 15 minutes a day? Sometimes I do that, but still, that's like, basically her she wrote one book and she's like making all this money i'm like that does that does not happen it does not happen unless you're coho unless you're colleen hoover that does not happen so anyway i'm really into Co colleen hoover right now oh my god just feasting on her books she's fantastic she's fantastic so anyway um book so finished. the book that you want to feature today is also before I get to that, <clears throat> I would like to say thank you to um, everyone who is purchasing uh, the Abby Cooper series. So basically what happens is <clears throat> I get a, a royalty statement, a statement of, you know, how many books have sold um, from nine months ago. So um, it, it covers a six month block that began nine months ago, which was right around the time when we started the podcast. And there has been a significant jump in the number of at least the first three Abbeys. And I'll get subsequent um, statements going forward. But um, thank you, you guys. Like, that's awesome. You know, you're killing it. Um, so I really, really appreciate everybody who's, who's diving into Abbey. So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I got the statement. I was like, this is like almost two and a half times what I was thinking it was going to be. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Okay. So speaking of Abby, this is possibly the ugliest cover. I'm sorry to the cover artist, but I, I really, really hate this cover. I, it does. She doesn't look human. She looks like a mannequin. Honestly, she looks like a fucking mannequin in the window. So Monica Rowe is my, the cover artist who, who basically took it from, the next book all the way through. And she's done all of the um, Cat Gilly books as well. She's phenomenal. She is so good. Um, and I absolutely love her. So this was the last of this cover art. Um, I, I kicked it back. Like we don't have a lot of say, just so you know, we really don't have a lot of say in what our covers look like. And I, I really tried to kick it back a couple of times and um, every time you kick it back, it costs them more. So the publishing house was like, no, you're just going to have to live with it. And I'm like, oh, so I've had to live with it. Anyway, ignore the cover. Um, Vision Impossible. I always wanted to write a spy novel. And so this was my opportunity. So basically in this novel, um, there is a, <clears throat> a drone that is outfitted with a camera that can take the photograph um, or actually a video of anybody's electromagnetic uh, frequency, basically, uh, and translate that into colors. So whenever I look at someone 
when I'm in intuition mode and I want to get a little bit more information out of their energy, I can kind of dive into the colors of their auras. It's not literally that I'm seeing it in front of my face, but I get the imagery in my mind's eye. And um, everybody's aura is very unique and it's always kind of in, in flux. Like the colors typically remain the same, but they kind of swirl in sort of different patterns. So, which is where I came up with the idea. So anyway, so there's this technology that takes these individual um, auric, uh, basically thumbprints, fingerprints, and translates it into, you know, this person, right? So um, the technology has been stolen um, and <clears throat> from the US and it has fallen into the wrong hands, someone who wants to sell it to the highest bidder. And because this drone can identify anybody um, on earth and then send poisonous darts down to kill them. Um, the CIA would never, you know, invest in something like that. Would they, would they, would they? Anyway, um, uh, Abby and Dutch go undercover, like deep, deep, deep undercover in the CIA. And this is the first book, Vision Impossible, um, where we're introduced to Max Greenkoff, who is one of my all-time favorite characters. Um, in, the, in any of the series. He shows back up in the Cat Gilly series. I was dying for another book to bring him back. And um, I really wanted him to show up for Cat in sort of a different persona. So I brought him back for the Cat Gilly series. So that's that's the first book where you're introduced to Max. M-A-K-S, Max, Sexy Max. So that's the um, book, Vision Impossible. Everywhere books are sold. Okay, so I, <laughs> my brain is just really, as you can tell, my brain is really just kind of scrambled. So um, I don't have a good anecdote because like, it's just been read someone and then back to the manuscript and read someone and back to the manuscript. So I haven't like retained anything. I didn't make any notes on any of the, um, my anecdotes <clears throat> or if, on any of my readings for anecdotes this week. So I decided to four minutes before this podcast, uh, send word out on on the Facebook fan page. Uh, it's fans of Victoria Laurie. Um, and uh, I got a couple of decent questions, um, actually good questions. So um, I'll take them uh, as they came to me. So Elizabeth Mayfield uh, wanted to know if um, I ever dream prophetically or if um, my dreams are like everybody else's where I'm running around naked or flying over a town. So um, first of all, I don't have naked dreams, thank goodness. <laughs> no one wants to see that, especially not my subconscious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's that famous painting, The Scream? Yeah. My eyes, my Exactly, exactly. No, mm -mm. nope, not safe for family TV. That is um, the world that my subconscious lives in. So <clears throat> um, I have <laughs> the only kind of, I don't have any prophetic dreams, none, but a dream that I have kind of all the time because I, I put myself through uh, college waitressing, uh, cocktailing, bartending, and waitressing. So um, my nightmares are all about um, walking into my section. It's completely full. Um, I have to take everybody's order. I get back to um, start the drinks and something's wrong with the, with the fountain. There's no bartender behind the bar. Like, and um, I can't remember any of the, what uh, we used to call them PLUs, price lookups. 
Um, so they were the numbers attached to whatever menu item. And I can't remember any of those. And I don't know how to work the computer system and everybody's so busy, they won't help me. So it's like that overwhelming feeling of being, if you've ever waitressed, you know, of being in the weeds where you're just like, I, th there are two things I can do here. One, just scream and cry or walk out. And pretty much every time I just walk out, <laughs> just like, fuck it, boom, off I go. Quiet quitting. That's what I do. I quiet quit. Um, so yeah, no, I, I dream normal. Go ahead. Did you have a comment? No, I just think that's great that you did quiet quitting in your dream. Oh yeah. In your dream. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. I'm out of here. Um, and then Jessica Robbins wants to know if um, I ever go out in public and uh, feel a strong pull towards someone and feel compelled to tell them. Um, no, I do not. Um, I walk around just like you walk around normal. Uh, when I go to the grocery store, I'm focused on my list. I'm focused on living my life. Um, I'm really only in intuition mode when I'm doing readings. <clears throat> That's it. Um, so it's like a switch I turn on. I will say, however, if someone asks me a question that has sort of a, um, a they don't know the answer, um, my intuition will grab it. So, which is why I'm very careful and Sandy knows this, very careful about my inner circle because anybody who triggers that regularly, bye. <laughs> because it's like this reflex that I can't stop. Um, so I have to be like very, very careful um, when people are gathered around and they're asking questions, you know, like pondering philosophically about their lives. So um, I have to kind of bring it in. Um, although there was uh, one incident and this was really what taught me not to turn my radar on outside of my little cocoon here. Um, I went to a bank. This was oh God, 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember. And I think it was cashing a check or something. It was withdrawing money, cashing check something. And the teller um, <clears throat> was behind the window and she's processing it, making small talk. And out of my mouth, I say, you're moving. <laughs> and she like did one of those and she looked at me like intensely like do I know you and she said how do you know that and I said oh flippantly I'm psychic and she got really nervous and then what do I do I make it worse I say there's going to be a problem with your u-haul you will need to make sure that you have a backup because I feel like there could be something wrong with the tire um and she could not get me away from her teller window as uh, fast enough. She was completely freaked out because she was renting a U-Haul. Um, and <clears throat> the in-town moves for U-Haul, they always use the trucks that they retire from the long distance um, moves. So they're always a piece of shit. So if you ever wonder why, if you move long distance, you get a nice U-Haul and you move in town and you get like the one with the brakes that don't quite work, that is why. So, um, so I have no idea if she had any problem with her U-Haul. I don't know if that came true, but um, I certainly freaked her out. So uh, since that day, 22 years ago, I have not opened my mouth to do that. Because um, why? You know, why free people out? Um, and then Vicki Wilson says, uh, asked, uh, when did I first know that I had the ability? I don't know. You know, I want to say um, probably my very late 20s, early 30s. Um, I remember walking into a store that sold um, 
kind of cool artsy sort of stuff. And there were these um, dichroic glass, which is a really cool glass technique where it's kind of like glittery. Um, it's like glittery in the bottom and then there's this dome of glass that covers it. And <clears throat> there were these Nordic symbols, they were called runes. And I was just super, super drawn to them. Sandy's laughing because I once tried to teach her how to read runes. It, it was a disaster, it did not total well. freaking disaster. Well. You don't take someone who's very literal and try and teach them about runes. Okay, you just don't, that's a bad idea. I just, I just remember like notes, just Sandy writing note after note after note. And this one means, unless it means, and sometimes it means, and sometimes it doesn't mean any of those things. And it could mean something like this. Sometimes it links to another one. You know, yeah. well, the language of intuition is very fluid. Um, it's it's just a very, it's definitely not analytical. It's very kind of fluid. So um, this is where Sandy and I really, you, you could, you know, you can see her talent, obviously, you know, the analytical, you know, everything's buttoned up, the great note taker, the on time, the, you know, Linear. we schedule to do a podcast. We do it at this time on this day, boom. <clears throat> and then there's me you know, hippie me. La, 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 da, da, da. So um, anyway, um, uh, so I, I remember buying them and they were not cheap at the time. Um, and it might've been almost all of the money that I had at that moment. <laughs> um, and I brought them home and I just like knew what they meant. Like I just knew what they meant. And I don't know how I knew what they meant, but I knew what they meant. So, um, so that was when I kind of first started playing with doing readings for friends and, um, I was coming up with stuff that like, I could not possibly know. Um, I remember one girlfriend came up and was like, hi, how are you? And I'm like, you cheated on your boyfriend, on your fiance. She was like, <gasps> and I'm like, and the guy you cheated on him with looks like this. She freaked out, absolutely freaked out. So, um, so yeah, fun times. Fun times. So thanks for your questions, guys. I appreciate it. You saved the day. I appreciate it. I didn't have to work too hard. Love it. Okay. So Sunday has come up with, I love this case. I love this case. I love this case. This is one of the, this is similar to, um, Sandy, what was the old pair we did where she was? Oh yeah. Karina Homer. Right. <clears throat> Very similar in that the, when I dove into it intuitively, it laid out boom, 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 boom. Um, just like, like wow. opening a present and seeing how it laid out. It was okay. really fascinating. So Sans is going to read it to you and then I'll give you my impression. So this is the fourth case in the series uh, of murders, I guess, or deaths that are connected to the Kennedy family. And this is about uh, Martha Moxley. So on October 30th, 1975, the body of 15-year-old Martha Moxley was found lying beneath a tree located in her own backyard. She had been bludgeoned to death with a golf club and then stabbed in the neck with a handle. Martha's pants and underwear were pulled down, but an autopsy later revealed that she had not been sexually assaulted. Her murder remained unsolved for more than 20 years until the year 2000, when Kennedy cousin and longtime suspect Michael Skakel, a neighbor, was arrested. Martha Elizabeth Moxley was born on August 6, 1960, to her father, J. David, and her mother, Dorothy. Dorothy considered Martha to be one of those special children that was easy to raise and spend time with. Her, her dad worked for accounting firm Touche Ross and had moved his wife, daughter Martha, and son John to Greenwich, Connecticut in the spring of 1974. 
After settling into their new home in the Tony Bellhaven section of Greenwich, the Moxleys quickly became immersed in their new community. Dorothy volunteered at Greenwich High School, where her son John attended as a freshman, and Martha was quickly popular and voted the student with the best personality by her junior high school peers. On October 30th, 1975, known as Mischief Night, the weather in Bellhaven was clear and crisp. Martha and several other neighborhood teenagers roamed the secluded streets, flinging toilet paper rolls into trees and squirting shaving cream into and onto mailboxes. Martha was accompanied by Helen Ix, the daughter of Robert E. Ix, president of Schweppes, Inc., Jackie Wittenhall, the daughter of John H. Wittenhall, president of the National Dairy Association, and the Skakel brothers, 17-year-old Thomas and his younger brother, 15-year-old Michael. Tommy and Michael are the third and fifth of seven children born to Rushton Walter Skakel and Ann Reynolds and are the nephews of Rushton's sister, Ethel, who was the wife of the late Robert Kennedy. Rushton headed the company his grandfather, George, founded, the Great Lakes Carbon Corporation, a coal company that at the time was one of the largest and wealthiest privately held corporations in the U.S. The Skakels lived across the street from the Moxleys on a chained-off cul-de-sac in what was thought to be an ultra-safe neighborhood, reinforced by three private police guard posts on two main access roads and barricades extending into the streets to impede unfamiliar traffic. That evening at around 9 p.m., Martha and two friends walked to the Skakels' home and sat with Michael in the family's Lincoln Continental, listening to music. Fifteen minutes later, Tommy Skakel joined the group, and shortly thereafter, two of Michael and Tommy's brothers and a cousin ushered the younger kids out of the car so they could take the Lincoln to their cousin's home in North Greenwich. After the cousins and Michael left in the Lincoln, Martha began flirting with and eventually kissed Tommy. The two were last seen together at around 9.30 p.m., falling together behind the fence near the pool in the Skakel backyard. Tommy later told investigators that he and Martha had engaged in intimate behavior for about 20 minutes before he left for home. Tommy then went into his house to finish a homework assignment. However, investigators would later discover that Tommy, Tommy did not, in fact, have an assignment due. As Martha walked the 200 yards from the Skakels toward her Walsh Lane home, she was struck in the head from behind as many as nine times with a golf club that belonged to Tommy and Michael's mother. The force of the blows fractured her skull, breaking the six iron into several pieces, some of which flew more than 100 feet. The assailant then used the broken off handle to stab Martha through the neck. At that point, the perpetrator dragged Martha's 5'5", 120-pound, lifeless body 80 feet, stopping along the way to shift positions, and hid her among some dead leaves under the low branches of a pine tree located in the backyard of the Moxley property. The murderer picked a tree that stood farthest from the road and the house and on a slope near some scrub. Martha's corpse wasn't discovered until the next afternoon by Sheila McGuire, a neighbor and classmate. Martha was found with her jeans and underwear pulled down, indicating the assailant had attempted a sexual assault. An, an autopsy was later delayed by 24 hours, so her time of death could only be estimated to be within a range sometime between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. The lack of physical evidence and the vagueness of the time of death made it difficult to make a case against anyone. Further, the shaft and the grip of the golf club have never been found, likely to cover up the perpetrator's fingerprints. Since Thomas Skakel was the last person to be seen with Martha on the night that she was murdered, he became a prime suspect, but his father denied authorities access to his school and mental health records. Kenneth Littleton, who had started working as a live-in tutor for the Skakel family only hours before Martha's murder, also became a prime suspect because of a microscopic study of hair samples found at the crime scene showed them to be like those of Kenneth Littleton. However, no one was charged with her murder. The brutal murder of a young high school student rocked the secluded Bellhaven neighborhood and burdened the police department as well as it, as it was ill-equipped to deal with such a heinous crime. 
As such, Martha's untimely death would go unanswered for 23 years. In 1991, Rushton Skakel hired Sutton Associates, a private detective agency, to investigate Martha's murder. Their report revealed that both of his sons had altered their stories about their activities on the night of the murder. And in 1993, it was disclosed that the Greenwich police detectives, Steve Carroll and Frank Gar, as well as a police officer, Leonard Livett, had become convinced that Michael was responsible for Martha's death. It didn't help that Michael claimed that after he had returned home at 11 p.m. that evening from his cousin's house, he had climbed a tree behind, beside the Moxley property, hoping to see Martha, and he reportedly sat in the tree for an hour, window peeping and masturbating. In June of 1998, a rarely invoked one-man grand jury was convened to review the evidence of the case. After an 18-month investigation, it was determined that there was enough evidence to charge Michael Skakel with murder. An arrest warrant was issued on January 9, 2000, and Michael surrendered to authorities later that day. He was released shortly thereafter on a half a million dollars worth of bail. Given that he was 15-year-old at, at the time of the murder, Michael was arranged on, arraigned on March 14th in juvenile court. However, on January 31st, 2001, a judge ruled that the 41-year-old would be tried as an adult. Michael's troubled past make him, made him a likely candidate for murder, at least by Greenwich, Connecticut standards. Two years before Martha's murder, Michael began abusing alcohol after his mother's premature death from brain cancer in 1973. Undiagnosed dyslexia made him a poor student, and he reportedly flunked out of a dozen schools. Known to be a sensitive, socially awkward child, Michael cowered under the harsh and occasionally violent rule of his alcoholic father who both ignored and abused him. According to neighbors and family friends, the Skakel children were given unlimited amounts of money, but were largely unsupervised. In 1978, Michael was arrested for drunk driving in New York State, and to avoid criminal charges, he agreed to attend the Elan School in Poland, Maine, and receive treatment for his alcoholism. He ran away from the school twice before he finally left after two years of being there. Following high school, he attended Curry College in Milton, Massachusetts, and earned a bachelor's degree in English. And throughout the 1980s, Michael attended several drug rehab facilities before finally becoming sober in his late 20s. In 1991, he married professional golfer Margot Sheridan, with whom he had one child. Margot promptly filed for divorce shortly after Michael was arrested for Martha Moxley's murder in January of 2000, and their divorce was finalized in 2001. Michael's trial, which garnered worldwide attention, began on May 7, 2002, in Norwalk, Connecticut. And despite having a confirmed alibi for his whereabouts at the time of Martha's murder and the lack of any physical evidence linking him to the crime, he was found guilty of murder one month later on June 7. He was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison and was remanded to Garner Correctional Institution in Newtown, Connecticut. Multiple appeals followed, all of which were denied until 2013, when Michael was granted a new trial by a Connecticut judge who ruled that his defense counsel had been inadequate. Michael was then released on $1.2 million worth of bail, and on December 30, 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to three to reinstate Michael's conviction. However, the court then reversed itself on May 4, 2018, and ordered a new trial. Uh, on October 30, 2020, the state of Connecticut announced it would not retry Michael Skakel for Martha Moxley's murder, leaving the Moxley family no closer to knowing who killed their beloved Martha now 46 years ago. In the aftermath, Tom and Michael Skakel do not have a close relationship and lead very different lives. Michael supposedly lives in Westchester County, New York, and is focused on staying out of the limelight, and his brother Tommy got married in 1989 and now lives with his family in Lenox, Massachusetts. Shortly after her death, Martha's family moved from Greenwich to Annapolis, Maryland, 
and her father, Jay David, passed away in 1988 at the young age of 57 from a heart attack. Dorothy and her son, John, continue to keep Martha's name and memory alive in hopes of one day being able to bring her killer to justice. The question is, will there ever be justice for Martha? Perhaps Victoria knows. My sources for this article include Wikipedia, The Murder of Martha, Martha Moxley, The New York Times, Friends, <clears throat> and a fund recalled a murdered girl in Greenwich by James Ferron special to the New York Times, uh, December 23rd, 1975. Time Magazine, The Skakel Trial, Gruesome Details from Day 2 by Simon Criddle, May 9, 2002. Hartford Current, Opinion Many Still Ask Who Killed Martha Moxley by David R. Cameron, who was an op-ed, April 22nd, 2013. The Wrap, Oxygen's Murder and Justice, The Case of Martha Moxley, Reexamines Heinous Murder 44 Years Later by Beatrice Verhoeven. June 15th, 2019, and The Crimeaholic, Where Are Martha Moxley's Parents, Dorothy and David Moxley Now? Vizwa Vanapoli, updated November 6th, 2021. Fascinating case. So <clears throat> um, as I always do, I kind of do, did a little bit of a deep dive just to sort of flesh out the landscape <clears throat> of where she died, what the proximity was between the Skakel house and the um, Moxley House and all of that stuff. And it started to kind of unfold in my mind. And I'm, you know, looking at stuff and I'm like, that's not what I need to be looking at. That's not what I need to be. And I stumbled upon a YouTube video by Kenneth Maines, who runs a Unsolved No More YouTube um, YouTube thing. Um, and I, I listened to him and it was funny because he started making these points and I looked at my notes and it was all the points I was making um, intuitively. So um, a couple of things. First of all, um, Michael did it. 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 He was really? the sole murderer of wow. Mar Martha Moxley. Yes. He murdered her in cold blood. Um, his brother, Tommy, I do believe knew, but found out about it, I believe, when Michael came home covered in blood because... Martha was bludgeoned by up to 15 blows to the head. So they couldn't even tell that her hair was blonde. Mm. Um, so, you know, he just, he really obliterated her, unfortunately. Um, and I think Michael came home when Tommy was in the room watching TV with uh, Kenneth, was it Littleton. Uh, Littleton? Yeah. Yeah, with Ken Littleton. They were watching TV. I believe Michael went into the bathroom because they keep having this flash of blood in the bathroom. And I think Tommy saw that. So they both give these kind of alibis <clears throat> that are one story, right? Um, and then things change when the Sutton report uh, investigates. So their father, who was tired of obviously trying to defend the boys, wanted to put a stop to the, uh, the false accusations. So he hires this detective company and it backfires on him. Um, and they're like, Michael did it. <laughs> so Michael's story of climbing the tree and being the peeping Tom um, for Martha, I believe that he was kind of obsessed with her um, at 15. And he thought that they had kind of a flirty sort of relationship. And I don't think Martha knew what she was opening with him. You know, I think that she was just that kind of girl that liked to flirt. Um, I don't think she was promiscuous in any way, but I think that like she found it playful and fun and probably wanted to make this awkward kid feel a little bit better about himself. But she really had the hots for Tommy. So mm -hmm. she and Tommy, I do believe, hooked up, um, not hooked up, but um, kissed 
okay, fooled around a little bit uh, behind the fence. And I absolutely believe Michael saw the whole thing. And then I, I think that he confronted Martha because he couldn't confront his older brother who would have pummeled him. I mean, if you look at the pictures of Michael and then Tommy at yeah, the time. Yeah, big difference. Yeah, he, I mean, Tommy's a big guy. Yeah. And um, so he would have pounded him into, you know, nothing. Um, Michael uh, was an alcoholic at 13. At 15, he, he was into cocaine and alcohol. So this is not someone who is thinking correctly. And I believe that it was uh, affecting his brain chemistry as well. So, um, and his father had seven kids and worked, you know, crazy hours. Nobody was at home supervising these kids at all. So I think that on this mischief night, Michael wasn't at home. He was out looking for, you know, watching people, right? Cause he's a peeping Tom. So he climbs the tree, is looking for Martha, can't find her, goes to try and find her, finds her with Tommy, spies on them. She and Tommy separate. He goes back home because he's going to go watch TV with Ken Littleton. And um, Martha heads <clears throat> towards her house. There is at 10 o'clock, right around 10 o'clock, there is um, a commotion that people hear. Dog is barking incessantly and someone hears shouting. Okay, shouting. And I believe that's Michael confronting Martha. When you look at the crime scene, there are two separate places where there's blood. There's one... That is, I believe in her, I, I can't remember where it is, but they're, they're at some distance apart. So there's a small there's drop the driveway. Where, there was the driveway and then bush, like yeah. leaves off to the side of the, right, of the right, road. Which was grassy area. Murdered her. Yeah. So I think, um, and uh, Ken Maines makes the point. He's like, he thinks that there was initial like punch um, and that drew blood. Um, and, and I kind of think, I don't know that it was a punch. I think he hit her with the golf club. And I think that drew blood. Um, and then I feel like she tried to run away and that's when he got a running start with the golf club and pummeled her. And that's where he murdered her. So it turns out the tree that she was found under is the same tree where he says that he was masturbating later. He tells the Sutton detectives, private investigators that um, he was masturbating in this tree. And um, I agree with Ken, who made the statement, like, um, when this report was commissioned, DNA was starting to be kind of widely used, right? So, um, and there would have been no reference for it in 1975. So I think, and Ken does as well, that uh, Michael was trying to cover any evidence of him um, ejaculating or DNA evidence in the area where he eventually put Martha's body, which was underneath the same tree. Mm -hmm. So I think he was trying to cover it up for, um, for that. And I think that uh, Tommy changed his story because he knew his brother did it and wanted to lay the groundwork of, I wasn't anywhere near her. If Michael confessed, I wasn't anywhere near her. I had gone inside. So it, it allows him to go, my brother confessed. Well, yeah, he did. Cause he saw us making out, which is really what happened. That's mm. really what happened. Um, and I think that the whole, you know, pulling her pants down was an effort to um, degrade her to, um, you know, be like their bitch, you know, you got what you deserved. Um, I think his rage is 
incredibly scary, like incredibly scary. I mean, he, he bludgeons at 15, he bludgeons this girl 15 times and then takes the shaft. Like he's not done, you know, he's not done. He's, he's made pulp of her head. And then he drives a shaft into the side of her neck. Very, very passionate. um, Exactly. And it's immature, right? It's an overreaction that you would expect like an angry 15 year old who's got impulse control issues as he obviously does because he's an alcoholic and he's into cocaine um and he's from a very destabilized family um and his father is abusive and his mother died and you know that is not an excuse at all at all but uh, you can see them all being contributing factors um i think he's i think he's absolutely dangerous man and i think there was a confession where he because he's confessed like on numerous occasions, supposedly, right? But there was a confession where someone recalls him saying, I drove her skull. That's a golf term. Mm-hmm. That's a golf term. So this guy grows up and marries a golf pro. He's into golf. He takes a golf club, pummels her with a golf club. It's all golf. So of course his wife was like, fuck this, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh my God, he did murder. He did murder her. Um, and, uh, I kind of feel like he's still, um, a danger, honestly, I, I wouldn't trust that, that guy to be within a hundred feet of anyone. Truly. I don't think he will ever, unfortunately, I really don't think he will ever be brought to just to justice because his, his brother probably saw the evidence, the blood in the bathroom. That's, I just keep seeing blood on tile, blood on tile. That's what I keep seeing when I focus in on Tommy. I don't think, and Tommy may have had something to do with hiding some of the efforts, right? He could have the golf club shaft potentially. I really feel like that golf club shaft ended up at the bottom of the garbage. And Mm -hmm. then, um, because no one searched the house. Right. 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 So that's why that's gone. Um, I don't feel it's buried or anything. Um, and, um, I had another point. Oh, why does the, the fact that she's dragged 80 feet, right? When there are areas closer that he could have hidden her body. I think he was trying to pull it as far away from his house and as close to her house as he could get it because she was parked underneath that tree that he used to do the peeping Tom thing in. So, um, and even says at one point, I think he's like intimating that he's in the tree masturbating and he sees her on the ground and is calling her name but she doesn't wake up like there's Mm. there's something that i read that's like that scenario and i'm like how does he not know she's dead like there's a huge pool of blood her hair is you know i don't care if it's dark out like you can smell it you know you can smell it so he had to climb the tree if she's under the tree he had to climb that tree he would have known that she was dead so I think his story is bullshit. Um, and I a hundred percent, like you can't, it was sort of like Sans when I started reading the third paragraph, I'm like, Michael did it. Like mm. Michael did it, Michael did it, Michael did it. It's just so clear to me. Um, well, I appreciate that you say he wasn't brought to justice. He actually was, he spent 11 years in prison, but he was convicted primarily yeah. on circumstantial evidence. Like they just, right. there's never been enough, um, physical evidence right. or witnesses to put right. him at the crime scene. Right. So all yeah, they ever worked. had was circumstantial and, yeah. you know, it, it worked for 11 years, but it's left it. It's kind of like OJ. 
you know, a little bit, but it's also left connecting. it kind of, you know, well, okay, if it wasn't him, if he got released after 11 years and, mm-hmm. you know, the Supreme Court heard the case and said, okay, the state of Connecticut decided not to pursue a case. Yeah. Um, because they don't, they just don't have, there's no, you know, like this is 45 years ago. Yeah. You don't have the witnesses. Um, Tommy would have broken if he was going to break his silence. He would have broken before now. It's the Kennedy family. They have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the no way. Have- yeah, the Skakels have ridiculous money. Yeah. Um, ridiculous and, money. oh, there's also a story that um, Michael had a history of violence. Um, he chased Ethel around with a knife. What? And when she discovered uh, he was into the alcohol, she discovered he was in the alcohol and he chased her around with a knife. Wow. So, like, what's, what's even a question? <laughs> you know, this kid was disturbed. He was yeah. disturbed. Really disturbed. And I think that's, you know, I think Tommy isn't, I don't think Tommy's disturbed. I think Michael is absolutely disturbed, but I think Tommy wants nothing to do with his brother because I really believe he knows Michael did it. Well, what about the guy Littleton? I don't think he had anything to do with it. I know that there are a lot of theories out there that he knew. Yeah. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. Um, And, and a lot of those theories about that he knew it because he, Prior to going, prior to that night, he had been kind of, um, you know, a, a choir boy. He had been a really good, good young kid, you know, good young man. And then shortly thereafter, he was into cocaine. He was into drinking, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't think that's a guilt, guilty conscience. I think that that is access to money mm-hmm. um, and the stuff that money brings, which is drugs and alcohol. So um, I think that he, we're talking the mid 1970s. <laughs> That wasn't exactly, you know, a teetotaling time. <laughs> no. So I think he had access to um, money and drugs and alcohol. And I think that, you know, temptation. And I think he just went down that road. I don't think it had anything to do with Martha's death. I really don't think he knew. I kind of feel like if he had known, he would have said something. There's just mm-hmm. that feeling about him. So, yeah. Yeah. Terrible for her mother. Uh, um, yeah. You know, because I've, I know that we've seen over the years, we've seen various interviews with her mother and how, like, it's still just so devastating to her. Um, and I, I think she absolutely knows Michael did it. I think she really does. And the, and that the Kevin Kennedys have tried all for these 40 years to cover it up and just make it go away. And they, in large part, kind of succeeded. But he, he 100, there's no way it was an outside, anybody on the outside either, because this was such a personal murder, right? The it fact was. that Martha was not sexually uh, molested. If she'd been sexually molested, I could kind of see an outside, an outsider, you know? Um, <clears throat> but the fact that that was done post-mortem and the fact that she was stabbed in the next post-mortem um, and the 15, I mean. No, it was a very a savage, a very savage murder. Yeah. Very savage, yeah, very personal, a lot of anger, anger coming out of her. Yeah. yeah. That is unchecked fury is what that is um and unchecked fury for what jealousy mm-hmm. it was jealous and i think that um he just really felt betrayed by martha because i think he thought that they were going to become this thing and i think that admitting to the fact that he was in this tree masturbating and had watched her before there's a lot of truth in that. I think it, that he was absolutely obsessed with her. They'd been mm-hmm. in the car together, all been in the car together. There are um, 
suggestions that they were kind of flirty in the car and then they all get out of the car and she goes off with Tommy. And I think that he felt humiliated, um, you know, no excuse, but that's, that's sort of my, my feeling. What triggered it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, yeah. interesting. I, I didn't think he did it. I thought, yeah, I thought he was convenient. A convenience. Oh, who did you but think? Who did you think did it, honey? I actually thought because of the savagery and the passion that it was Tommy feeling rejected. But it, everything you've said makes sense. I'm not disputing. It. It's just sort of when I looked at it cold. Right. Well, if like, you oh. think about it, like she obviously there was a commotion at ten o'clock, right? Mm -hmm. And at ten o'clock, Tommy was watching TV with Ken Littleton. Little. Yeah. And the reason that there's this question of whether or not Tom was involved to me question of whether Littleton was involved was because Littleton said he was watching television with Tommy and there was nothing unusual about Tommy so if he'd killed Martha 15 minutes earlier there oh, yeah. been blood there would have been sweat yeah. there would have been anxious like he never would have walked in and just sat down and watched television yeah so the timeline just doesn't match up with Tommy doing it it just it's just not there but Michael it absolutely matches up so there is a, um, his, uh, Michael's older sister, but I think she was the middle in between Tommy and nope, she would have been, I don't know if she was the middle in between or she was one of his older sisters. She came home and she said that she saw a dark figure, um, as she pulled into the driveway, she saw a dark figure, um, in the shrubbery or in the bushes somewhere. And, um, that it was, um, mischief night. And um, Ken had made a, a statement on his uh, broadcast, podcast, whatever it is, um, that he thinks that was Michael. And I agree. Mm. I absolutely agree. I think mm. Michael was waiting for his sister to get into the house so that he could sneak in and clean up because I think he was just absolutely covered in blood. So um, I think the clothes and the golf shaft ended up at the bottom of the garbage. And um, in his effort to clean up, he tracked some blood somewhere. And it makes sense that he and Tommy probably share a bathroom. So that's my, that's my thinking. Okay. Well, thank you for your insights as always. Um, so Nicole Bitzer posted on your fan page, a question about whether or not we'd be covering Jimmy Hoffa. And it just so happens I've already written that story. And so um, we're going to kind of shift from Kennedy focus uh, and head over toward a theme around men behaving badly. And so Jimmy Hoffa, we've mentioned as a result of the Marilyn Monroe case, and um, we may revisit another case that we've already done uh, connected to a man behaving badly down the road as well. But next week will be Jimmy Hoffa. So yeah, that's a that's a personal case for Sands and I because we lived um, in very close proximity to the restaurant where he, he was last seen. I've eaten there. I don't know if you it was the Fox and Hounds. It's no longer yeah. there. Um, I've eaten there. You've never eaten there? I don't. You don't remember? I have no idea. Yeah. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I can't remember if we ever went there, you know, with our parents uh, to eat or not. I probably can't remember, not. But it was like, it was really in our neighborhood. Um, so it was like that thing where I remember in my, you know, 20s and early 30s, like driving by going, you know, always thinking like Hoffa's, you know, last yeah. time Hoffa was there, yeah. you know, right there. Um, so it'll be really interesting to dive into that case. Cause I, uh, at this moment, I don't know, but I kind of know we've sort of talked a little bit. Um, and like I had my very immediate impressions. Um, so it'll be, 
it'll be really interesting for me to dive into. Hopefully it'll be another like this one where it was just. Yeah. Hopefully. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for everyone for tuning in uh, and staying dedicated as fans. Yes. I appreciate it. (laughs) I appreciate them. I appreciate them all. Just Sandy. I'm so busy. busy. Shut up. It's hard. (laughs) You're right. It's so hard. It is. It, Sandy, coming up with a hundred thousand words in six weeks, that is, it's not easy. It's not easy. Okay. Give it birth isn't. to twins and then we'll talk what's easy. 22 years ago. Okay. And they're still a pain in my butt. Okay. okay the well, the I hot wrote, tub I, is finally gone. Thank oh the baby Jesus. Yes. Got your me. life is so much more hard than, it than is. mine. You have college age boys who are off to college again, who come home eat my refrigerator and then leave. Yes. You're right. It's terrible. How do you endure the hardship? Yeah. That's the only thing I have going on. My violin. Okay. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Cause that's all I've got going on. Plus my nephews are awesome. They're awesome. They are awesome kids. Like, like what is to complain about? (laughs) They're great kids. I gotta go. Okay. (laughs) Whatever. All right. I love you very much. Love you too. Thank you very much for your insights today. And we'll see everyone next week for Jimmy Hoffa. We'll do. Okay. Love you. Bye. Bye everyone.